Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and uh, and she should have been there all along. WNBA star Brittany Griner was freed in a prisoner swap today. She was serving a prison sentence for drug charges in Russia. It's Thursday, December 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the latest on the prisoner swap with Russia that brings Griner home. Also ahead, Indonesia has passed a new criminal code that prevents anyone in the country from having extramarital sex and restricts political freedoms. And 50,000 investigations have been opened into alleged war crimes by Russian troops in Ukraine. It's a number that's difficult to comprehend. What I started to notice that I started to use numbers instead names. NPR looked into just one case, the death of a man, and what it might take to find justice. It's 401, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Brittany Griner faces a homecoming nearly 10 months in the making. The WNBA star and two-time Olympic gold medalist was released today from Russian captivity. President Biden says that moment was the result of months of painstakingly intense negotiations with Russia since Griner's detention for bringing cartridges of what Griner described as medical cannabis. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits. She uh, She's relieved to finally be heading home. But the president says the U.S. was unable to convince Russia to also release Paul Whelan, who has 12 more years left on his prison sentence for espionage, a charge Whelan denies. We have more from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. U.S. officials say they made what they called generous offers to resolve both cases. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the Russians made clear that it would either be Griner or no one. Unfortunately, uh, Russia has continued to um, see... Uh, Paul's case through the, uh, the lens of, of sham espionage charges, and they are treating him differently than they treated um, Brittany Griner. Whelan has been in prison for nearly four years. Blinken says he's determined to get Whelan home and will continue to press the Russians to release him. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The WNBA Players Association's Vice President, Shanae Ogwumike, describes the significance of Griner's freedom. This moment here, is huge because of what Brittany Griner, our sister, represents simply by existing, particularly as a black queer woman who is often criticized or often ignored. So BG coming home, I think, you know, is is so emblematic of the direction that our society is moving and the direction that, you know, sports operating at the intersection of culture, but also advocacy, it's real and it matters and it is important. Ogumike in an interview with CNN. Both the House and the Senate have passed a Respect for Marriage Act, which codifies same-sex and interracial marriages. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. The legislation passed with bipartisan support. The yeas are 258, the nays are 169, present one. The motion is adopted. The bill will require that all states recognize same-sex and interracial marriages performed in any other state, but will not require that states individually allow these marriages to be performed. The House first put up the issue for a vote in July after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which brought up concerns on whether they would overturn same-sex and interracial marriage protections as well. The legislation passed through the Senate last week with 12 Republicans joining Democrats in favor of the bill, and President Biden is expected to sign it into law soon. 
Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. More now on today's House vote to protect same-sex and interracial marriage. The Massachusetts All-Democratic House delegation today voted unanimously for the bill and applauded its passage. Congressman Richard Neal says the legislation is a landmark step forward in recognizing the dignity and equality of all people. Congresswoman Laurie Trahan calls passage of the Respect for Marriage Act an overdue step in the right direction. But she warns it contains loopholes that leave LGBTQ plus couples vulnerable. Trahan wants Congress to pass more comprehensive protections. The Environmental Protection Agency says that the company cleaning up the Pilgrim nuclear power plant in Plymouth may not dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. In a letter to the company Holtec, the EPA said that unauthorized discharges into the bay would be a violation of the Clean Water Act. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, some environmental advocates worry that a warning from the EPA won't be enough to stop the company. Andrew Gottlieb, executive director of the nonprofit Association to Preserve Cape Cod, applauds the EPA's move, but says the group will also seek an injunction to prevent the dumping. He says discharging contaminated water into the bay would cause irreparable harm to the region's economy. If you're deciding where you're going to buy seafood from or go fishing, then you have a choice between a place that's been exposed to radioactive waste and one that hasn't. You're going to pick the one that hasn't. In a statement, Holtec said the company, quote, remains committed to being open and transparent as they work with regulators. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Federal regulators have authorized the updated COVID vaccine booster from Cambridge-based Moderna for young children. The Food and Drug Administration today announced that six the children six months through five years will be eligible for the new bivalent shot targeting Omicron and its subvariants once the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention signs off. Today's ruling also applies to the updated Pfizer booster. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight, lows around 31 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 44. Mostly cloudy on Saturday with a slight chance of rain after 10 a.m. Right now, 47 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Nine months ago, basketball star Brittany Griner was arrested on drug charges in Russia. Today, she is on her way home to the U.S. She was swapped for a Russian arms dealer who still had years to go on a U.S. prison sentence. President Biden made the announcement at the White House with Griner's wife by his side. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances. Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. There has been an outpouring of joy over this news from Griner's fans and supporters, but the White House is still facing critical questions about the prisoner swap. I'm joined now by NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez and Moscow correspondent Charles Maines. Hey to both of you. Hey, awesome. Hey there. Okay, so Franco, I mean, this was a pretty dramatic moment this morning, but can we just back up? Tell us 
how this swap came to pass over many, many months, right? Right. It was an agreement for many, many months. A lot of backroom negotiations between Washington and Moscow. In the end, it was a one-for-one prisoner swap. Griner, as you noted, was swapped for convicted Russian arms trader Victor Boot, which was made at the Abu Dhabi airport in the United Arab Emirates today. Biden actually signed an order cutting short Boot's 25-year sentence. The White House invited Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, to the White House for a meeting with the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. But when she arrived, she was directed to the Oval Office, where President Biden was there to tell her himself that Brittany Griner was coming home. And Charles, how did news of this whole prisoner exchange break in Russia? Well, we learned of this in Moscow from Russia's foreign ministry, which issued a statement saying the trade had taken place after lengthy negotiations. Uh, Russian state TV later aired video from the security services here uh, that showed a smiling grinder, hair now cropped short, uh, signing her release papers, then leaving the prison colony in Mordovia uh, to get on a plane. And there's even a bit where the FSB agents engage Griner on camera. Let's listen. Do you know where I'm heading to? No. No? No. 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 You fly back home. To the U.S. To the U.S. Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. But Charles, I mean, the U.S. has been pursuing this deal for months now, and Russia seemed to be holding out the whole time. What do you think changed here? Well, you know, one of the reasons the Russian government has given all along is that Griner's legal proceedings needed to run their course before any trade could happen. So just last month, Griner exhausted her appeals process and began formally serving out her nine-year prison term. Uh, now, beyond the legal wrangling, there's little question. You know, Moscow enjoyed the political pressure building on the White House to get Griner home. But there's also a certain logic to the Russian position. You know, her conviction uh, sent Griner to prison, but it, what it also did was open the door, legally speaking, for her to be pardoned right. because Griner had now been convicted of a crime. Exactly. Okay, well, this whole detention has been quite high profile in part because Griner is such an accomplished and well-known athlete. And there has been a lot of activism surrounding her detention. Brinko, can you talk about that piece of this? Like, what was the reaction like to her release? Uh, it's been really big and from so many different sectors of society. Former President Barack Obama said he was grateful for Griner's, quote, long overdue release. The Phoenix Mercury, which is Griner's basketball team, had had a regular count of the days that she was in detention. The team posted, no more days. She's coming home. And at the White House, Griner's wife, Sherelle, was visibly moved. <sighs> So over the last nine months, you all have been um, so privy to one of the darkest moments of my life. And so today I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions. Biden acknowledged that there was a lot of pressure that he was under in, you know, different ways. Brittany Griner wrote him a letter this summer saying, quote, I'm terrified I might be here forever. Mm. And as Charles pointed out, progress seemed to have stalled for a few months. But a few weeks ago, Biden said that he had hoped Putin would be more willing to discuss a prisoner exchange after the U.S. midterm elections were over. After the elections. OK, well, Charles... You have followed Griner's case for months now. You've attended like every stage of her trial in Moscow. Can you just remind us of some of what you saw, what you heard during that time? 
Yeah, you know, this trial uh, unfolded against the collapse in U.S.-Russian relations over the conflict in Ukraine, and it's a situation that made many feel Greiner was a hostage to geopolitics uh, rather than a defendant in a drug trial. Uh, you know, as to the proceedings, you know, they took place in a small courtroom uh, with six foot nine Griner often in a cage, uh, and it was incredibly hot there. It was over the summer. You know, at one point, a U.S. embassy official nearly fainted from the heat. And yet I was struck uh, by how Griner just handled herself throughout. You know, she was very calm given circumstances. In fact, one of the few times I saw her grow openly emotional uh, was when her Russian teammates and coach came to testify on Griner's behalf. Uh, despite her ordeal, despite everything, you know, there's clearly a lot of affection between them, even now. Yeah. Well, tell us more about Victor Boot, the man exchanged for Griner. Like, why did the Russians want him back so much? Well, Russia has wanted Boot back ever since he was detained, uh, initially in Thailand in a U.S. sting operation in 2008. Uh, Boot has been cover colorfully labeled the, the merchant of death by the media, right. but, you know, his story is, is more complicated. I mean, he's a one-time Soviet military translator who started a global gun-running business, arguably one of the world's most successful ones, uh, providing arms to civil wars in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, uh, even for the U.S. military operations in Iraq for a time. Uh, he, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison by a U.S. court in 2011 on narco-terrorism charges. In other words, trafficking weapons that could kill Americans, not that necessarily did. Uh, either way, Russia's government has always argued he was illegally extradited by the U.S., uh, to the U.S., excuse me, and his case was an example uh, of an American judicial overreach, and his release will certainly be celebrated here as well. Well, Franco, I mean, there's also another U.S. prisoner who's still detained in Russia, Paul Whelan. The White House had made it clear for months, right, like that they wanted Whelan to be part of this trade. And I'm wondering, did they say why Whelan wasn't included? And what have we heard from Whelan's family about this latest news? Well, Paul Whelan's brother, David, said in a statement that he was glad that Griner was on her way home, but that it was also a disappointment for the family and a, quote, catastrophe for Paul. They were thankful, though, that U.S. officials warned them in advance and did note that the Biden administration made the right decision, in their words, to make the deal that was possible rather than waiting for one that wasn't going to happen. That was NPR's Franco Ordonez and Charles Maines. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sex outside of marriage and living together without being married are crimes punishable with jail time under Indonesia's revamped criminal code. Critics say the sweeping revisions threaten a raft of human rights and civil liberties in the world's largest Muslim country. NPR's Julie McCarthy has that story. After years of wrangling, Indonesia's parliament this week overhauled its colonial-era criminal code inherited from its former Dutch administrators. Most controversially, the crime of adultery is expanded to include both sex outside marriage and sex among unmarried couples who cohabitate. The changes, says Human Rights Watch Asia director Elaine Pearson, collide with the image President Joko Widodo likes to project of Indonesia as a modern Muslim democracy. The criminal code that just passed is one that will actually violate the rights of women, religious minorities, LGBT people in Indonesia. And so, you know, it's actually a huge setback for human rights in Indonesia. Under the new provisions, a married adulterer can be jailed for one year. Couples living together could face six months in jail. Sociologist and women's rights advocate Gaddis Arivia 
says many Indonesians could be inadvertently liable because they cannot prove they're married. Millions of couples in Indonesia are already without marriage certificates, especially indigenous peoples or Muslims in rural areas, and because they practice cultural traditional marriage. So if you're implementing this kind of law, they will be affected. The criminal code revisions come as religious fundamentalism deepens across Indonesia. Supporters of the law insist it will gradually be implemented over three years and aims to strengthen the institution of marriage. But critics say the new provisions, which also cover foreign tourists, open the door to selective enforcement. Gaddis Arivia says the changes are meant to appease conservative forces. It is creating fear. It is creating fear in the public sphere. This is what it is about, that if you do this, this will happen to you. LGBTQ rights defender Dede Utomo says he's relieved that the code remains silent on the question of intercourse between same-sex couples. Historically, it's not been criminalized. We didn't have that. And ironically, in the Dutch colonial criminal code, uh, the state had no business in the citizen's bedroom. But Utomo says the provision that most threatens LGBTQ rights is the ban on spreading any ideology that seeks to replace the national principles of unity and tolerance. Ominously, Utomo says his movement has been labeled an ideology. That we actually borrowed from the West, and so we are dangerous to uh, the nationalist state. The criminal code, I mean, I would call it like a big nail in the coffin of uh, free expression, you know, freedom of privacy and democracy. Local governments across the country have enacted laws regulating how women should behave, mandating headscarves, imposing curfews, forbidding straddling a motorcycle. They are now recognized in the overhauled criminal code as legitimate, a move human rights defenders say will ultimately drive away investors and damage Indonesia's international standing. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 47 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, Italy's prime minister is suing writer Roberto Saviano for defamation. Saviano has lived under police protection since 2006 after death threats for his book on the mafia in Naples. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. On Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. The Dow was up a half percent at 33,781. The S&P 500 up three quarters of a percent to close at 3,964. And the Nasdaq was up 1.1 percent and the day at 11,082. 
In other business news, two Boston biotech companies are teaming up in the fight against a rare inherited disease that can cause muscle weakness. Today, Vertex Pharmaceuticals said it's forming a partnership with Entrada Therapeutics. Both companies are based in the seaport. The goal is to develop genetic therapies for myotonic dystrophy type 1. Vertex will pay Entrada up to $500 million for the collaboration. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen to the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 31 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, a high of 44, mostly cloudy Saturday, with a slight chance of rain after 10 a.m. The highs around 38 degrees. Right now, 47 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story, directed by Michael Showalter. In select theaters, everywhere tomorrow. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Italian journalist Roberto Saviano has lived under police protection since 2006 following death threats for his book Gamora. It's about the Neapolitan mafia. Now the government providing him that protection is putting him on trial. NPR's Silvia Pajoli reports that Giorgio Maloney, Italy's new hard-right prime minister, is suing Saviano for defamation. In December 2020, Saviano appeared on a current events TV show that was reporting on the delayed response by Italian authorities to shipwrecked migrants in the Mediterranean. He was shown a video shot a few weeks earlier on board the NGO ship Open Arms during a dramatic rescue mission. A young woman from Guinea was crying desperately. I lose my baby. Why me? The woman's six-month-old baby was ultimately rescued, along with another 110 migrants, but he died before reaching shore. In the TV studio, Sabiano was visibly angered. All you can say is, bastards, how could you, to Maloney and Salvini? Bastards, how is it possible? All this suffering? Okay, they've got a different policy. They're against welcoming migrants, but not in an emergency, in the middle of the sea. When she was in opposition, Giorgia Meloni claimed that under the law of the sea, illegal migrants do not have a right to be rescued while in Italian waters. Matteo Salvini is currently on trial for having blocked rescued migrants from disembarking and holding them in dire conditions when he was interior minister in 2019. Meloni is now prime minister. Salvini is her deputy and has joined Meloni in suing Saviano for calling them bastards. If found guilty, Saviano could face up to three years in jail. 
Following a first brief hearing last month, Saviano spoke outside the courthouse. I'm on trial for having sharply criticized Giorgia Maloney and Matteo Salvini, whom I consider those most responsible for the constant political propaganda waged against the most desperate human beings, those most vulnerable and unable to defend themselves, refugees. Journalists and writers in Italy and beyond have expressed solidarity with Saviano. Lawyer Antonio Nobili has represented him for over a decade. He points out that Italy has repeatedly delayed ratification of a European Union directive that calls for the elimination of prison sentences in defamation cases against journalists, human rights defenders, as well as researchers and academics. And Penn International, the Writers' Association that defends freedom of expression, sent an open letter to Prime Minister Meloni urging her to drop the case against Saviano. The latest charges it added are sadly representative of a worrying trend in Italy where journalists and writers work in the knowledge they might be sued and imprisoned for what they say or what they write. In an interview with the Daily Corriere della Sera last month, Meloni said she has no intention of dropping the lawsuit now that she's prime minister, and she's convinced the case will be treated impartially. Lawyer Antonio Nobile is skeptical. By not dropping the case, Maloney is requiring the judge to rule if and how extensively a prime minister can be criticized. We're in a situation where the executive is putting intense pressure on the judiciary. Saviano has given his lawyer instructions not to limit himself to a narrow defense of freedom of speech and intends to call numerous politicians as witnesses. Nobile says Saviano wants to turn his trial for defamation into a trial against the migration policies implemented by all recent Italian governments. The next hearing is December 12th. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News, Rome. This is NPR News. Cinematic nostalgia comes in all shapes and sizes this holiday season. Steven Spielberg's latest movie, The Fablemans, is about how he became a filmmaker. The comedy Babylon will soon offer a portrait of Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties. And today, we have Empire of Light, which critic Bob Mondello says is set almost entirely inside a grand old movie palace. When it opened in the 1920s, the Seaside Empire Theater must have been fabulous. Towering Art Deco sign facing the boardwalk, a grand double staircase in the lobby, burnished curved wood on the walls, brass fittings polished till they gleam like gold to match the gold swirls in the burgundy carpet. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. And that's just the lobby. In the auditorium, acres of seats face a velvet curtain that parts to reveal a majestic screen. It still has the power to awe. But this is the Maggie Thatcher 80s, and the films on the marquee now are the Blues Brothers and All That Jazz. Two titles because the grand old Empire Theater fell on hard times and got chopped into a multiplex. But folks still come, and Hillary, played by Olivia Coleman, still forces a smile through her numbness while selling them popcorn, until the arrival of a new employee, a student played by Michael Ward, with an upbeat Sidney Poitier vibe. They strike up a friendship, and suddenly she's full of life, encouraging him. They turned me down the first time. To study what? Architecture. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. You have to try again. Yeah, maybe. 
You can't just give up. Stephen. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. No one's going to give you the life you want. You have to go out and get it. Excellent advice, though of course she's not done that herself, and when her moods turn erratic, it becomes clear why. That numbness she had before? Medicated. Stephen's there and responsible, but when she's off her meds and creates a scene... Hillary, are you all right? Tell me truthfully. Did I humiliate myself? What? Tell me, did I? There's only so much cover he can provide. No, it wasn't humiliating. It was just... intense. To be honest, I thought you were a bit of a hero. <laughs> That's very nice of you. Hard to believe. Filmmaker Sam Mendes reportedly built Empire of Light around Coleman, and eyes darting, smile tentative, she delivers for him. The director also built the film around his setting, and the Empire Theater doesn't let him down either, a movie palace of the sort that audiences have increasingly been giving up for streaming services, despite the everyday miracle they deliver. Phil, it's just static frames with darkness in between. Toby Jones is projectionist, musing to Stephen about the magic they work in this place. There's a little flaw in your optic nerve. So if I run the film at 24 frames per second, it creates an illusion of motion. An illusion of life. So you don't see the darkness. Darkness? What darkness? For Mendes, darkness is what you get when you turn off the TV. At the cinema, he sees, as will audiences, an empire of light. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 46 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, there are 50,000 war crimes under investigation in Ukraine. NPR looked into the death of one man in the country and what it might mean to take to find justice. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. In 2017, the battle to retake Mosul from ISIS raised the Iraqi city to the ground. The first time when I stepped into the old town of Mosul, I said, there is no way this could be rebuilt. Five years later, the old town now is a completely different city, from a ghost town into a city vibrating with life, with colors. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. After months of talks and a variety of proposals from the Biden administration Russia has freed, WNBA star Brittany Griner in a high-level prisoner exchange. That proposal originally included former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who is serving 16 years in a Russian penal colony for alleged espionage. 
White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says this comes with mixed emotions. In recent weeks, it became clear that while Russians were willing to reach an agreement to secure Britney's release, they continued to treat Paul Whelan differently given the nature of the total, totally illegitimate charges they have levied against Paul. Unfortunately, the choice became to either bring Britney home or no one. In exchange for Griner, the U.S. is releasing notorious arms dealer Victor Boot. The swap comes during a time of heightened tensions between the U.S. and Russia over its war against Ukraine. In New York City, a cyber attack took down the Metropolitan Opera's ticketing website earlier this week. It remains offline. As Jeff London tells us, some performances took place, but the company was unable to sell new tickets. The Mets website typically sells $200,000 worth of tickets daily, including discounted last-minute rush tickets. But visitors are currently only getting a page saying a cyber attack has temporarily impacted the network, including the website, box office, and call center. According to Dan Waken, the Mets' senior director of communications, the FBI is aware of the attack, and third-party cybersecurity experts are looking Looking into the hack. The outage doesn't affect the Mets' production capabilities. Operas will continue to be performed, but no new tickets can be sold. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. And you're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Members of the state's congressional delegation are welcoming news that WNBA star Brittany Griner has been freed from a Russian prison in a prisoner swap with the U.S. In a tweet, Senator Ed Markey calls her detention unjustified and says it should never have happened. Congressman Bill Keating says we cannot forget that Russia is ultimately responsible and he's urging American companies to cut ties with the country. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is proposing some changes to the so-called millionaire's tax. Voters passed the constitutional amendment last month. Starting in the new year, it will add a 4% state surtax on incomes above $1 million. WBUR's Yasmin Amer has more. Revenue from the tax is intended to go to education and transportation. Galvin says he wants to set up an education trust to make sure it's spent correctly. He also wants a tax exemption for some elderly residents selling their primary homes. But Andrew Farnitano from the coalition that helped pass the tax says that exemption is unnecessary. Less than 1% of homes generate a gain large enough to be affected by this tax. Um, so we're talking about the largest mansions and vacation homes, um, not middle-class homes, even those that have appreciated in value over the years. Home sellers can deduct up to $500,000 from the tax in addition to renovation costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amr. Local advocates for same-sex marriage say today's passage of the Respect for Marriage Act in the U.S. House of Representatives is a victory for everyone who cares about fair treatment in America. Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston-based GLAAD. Wu says a majority of Americans support equal rights for same-sex couples, but he says there's been growing concern since the U.S. Supreme Court overruled, overturned Roe v. Wade. This should not be a controversial issue, but unfortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court has thrown marriage equality and LGBTQ rights in their targets. And so um, we are responding appropriately to prevent any further dismantling of our rights. All nine members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic House delegation voted in favor of the bill, which cleared the Senate last month. It's 435. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Both the Celtics and the Bruins are off tonight. The Bruins will take on the Coyotes tomorrow night in Arizona. Celtics play the Warriors Saturday in California. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 31 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow, the high around 44. Mostly cloudy Saturday, slight chance of rain after 10 a.m. That could mix in with some snow after 5 o'clock. The highs will be around 38 degrees. Right now it's 46 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. 50,000 investigations have been opened into alleged war crimes committed by Russian troops in Ukraine. 50,000 hospital bombings, kidnappings, executions of unarmed Ukrainian civilians. 50,000 is a number that's hard to comprehend on its own. Oleksandra Matvichuk heads the Center for Civil Liberties. She's one of the recipients of this year's Nobel Peace Prize. She believes the numbers obscure the scale of the loss. Yes, I'm a professional human rights lawyer, but first of all, I'm a human being. And what I started to notice that I started to use numbers instead of names. Today, we bring you a story from NPR's investigations team, a story that tries to address these vast numbers by focusing on just one case, one war crime, one investigation, one story that might illuminate the challenge that war crimes prosecutors face all over Ukraine. NPR investigative correspondent Tim Mack was in the country from the very first days of the invasion as terrified Ukrainian civilians faced the Russian onslaught. He heard a rumor about a man who may have served in the French Foreign Legion brutally killed, his body lying in the streets of a village called Nova Basan for 30 days, his car burnt to ashes right next to him. A warning that this report includes graphic descriptions of his killing. Tim traveled to Nova Basan with his team to see the destroyed car where the body was rumored to have been found. A local administrator was able to point him toward a neighboring town where he said the dead man's mother lived. Her name was Oksana. Tim Mack takes the story from here. When we got there, Oksana welcomed us into her home. You want coffee or tea? We sat in her kitchen. Oksana went to get a photograph of her son and put it on the table between us. Your son was in the French Foreign Legion, is that correct? What was his name? Uh, Alexander Breus. After his stint in the French Foreign Legion, he returned to Ukraine before the war broke out. How old was Alexander? She told me he died on the fifth day of the war, the morning of February 28th, on his way to evacuate his girlfriend and sister from Kyiv. She didn't know how Alexander was killed or who killed him. But she did have a video 
that showed the scene of the killing on the day of Alexander's death. So, she played it for us. Watching the video, Oksana was overcome. And at the moment we watched it, we recognized that Alexander's killing was almost certainly a war crime. By all indications, he was an unarmed man in civilian clothes, brutally killed. The video shows a man lying on the ground. His left arm lies limp, and his right arm is curled up across what remains of his head. It looks like an execution. The man taking the video narrates what he's seeing. The Russians drove through, damn it, he says. On the video, Alexander's body is next to the same burnt-out, destroyed car we had seen near Novobasan. There's a large hole in the back door on the driver's side. Poor thing, says the man on the video. Oksana could no longer continue. I think we're gonna talk to his sister if she wants to talk about it. I think we're gonna stop this. Still, she wanted to show us one more thing. Alexander's dog, Clifford. Cliff. Such a handsome dog, she says. Do you see how much he misses him? When we returned to Kyiv, we showed Oksana's video to an official in Ukraine's State Bureau of Investigation. He told us it was clearly a war crime. The man was not a threat, in civilian clothes, carrying no weapons, and apparently facing away from the direction of the Russian advance. Alexander's case was one case among many that overwhelmed investigators were juggling. So we kept digging on our own. Alexander's mother had told us to call his sister, Anya. I can get us some coffee. No, no. Anya and Alexander were very close, and she sat down with us to tell us more about him. He changed his mind uh, very often. Like, today he wants to be a basketball player, tomorrow he wants to be a photographer, another day he wants to be a manager, and so on, so on. He even had a brief stint trying to be a rapper. Alexander was also a passionate Ukrainian patriot, she says. He liked to debate Russians about history in online chats, about the differences between Ukrainians and Russians. He always watched uh, videos about uh, Ukrainian history. He told us all the time that Russians are awful people. Sasha Hrushko, one of Alexander's best friends, remembers Alexander was restless in his 20s. In 2018, he joined the French Foreign Legion. He was looking for himself. He was looking for the some realization. That's why he just found out himself in the French Legion. A career in the military suited Alexander well. He thrived in stressful situations. I spoke to another friend of his, Boris, a legionnaire who served with him with the help of an interpreter. So he was a very calm, collected person. He was able to deal very easily with tough situations. He was very level-headed, cool-headed. Uh, he didn't have that many friends, but when he had one, he had intense friendships. Everyone described Alexander as a loyal friend. He was in the Legion for four years. Ultimately, Alexander left the French military in late 2021 after getting permanent residency status in France. Boris also told us about Alexander's girlfriend, Yulia. 
We reached out to her, but she was too overwhelmed by grief to speak with us. Yulia and Alexander had tried to have a long-distance relationship, but it wasn't easy. Still, Alexander was committed to the relationship. So I am sure that he wanted to propose, but I think that he wanted to do things well, and he didn't want to rush things. So a month before the war broke out, he decided to head back to his home country and back to Yulia. Boris shared a series of voice recordings between him and Alexander talking about it. Here's Alexander. He told Boris he was worried about the relationship, but he wanted to make it work. After he returned to Ukraine, he and Yulia began to reconcile. And Alexander began seriously talking to his friends about proposing. But on February 24th, Russia surprised many Ukrainians by doing what had once been unthinkable. That's what it sounded like in Kiev this morning as Ukrainians faced down the reality of a Russian invasion. In the chaos, Alexander brought his dog Clifford to his childhood home in Bobrovitsa. He planned to head back to the capital city, some two hours away, to evacuate his girlfriend and sister. But during the first week of the war, the Ukrainian government instituted a multi-day curfew in Kiev, preventing him from getting back to them. The uncertain, anxious situation brought him to tears, Anya recalled. He was disappointed because he wanted to arrive to Yulia as soon as possible, and uh, he stayed at Bobrovica for two days. And there was another thing. Russian forces were on the move. By February 28th, four days into the invasion, Alexander began his journey towards Kyiv. And so did the Russian forces. If you're just joining us, you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We are bringing you a story today from our investigations team in Ukraine. NPR's Tim Mack has been looking into the death of Oleksandr Bryus, a war crime during the Russian invasion, to try to find out how he died and who killed him. Back to Tim. Alexander left his childhood home at around 8 a.m., shortly after the curfew in Kyiv was lifted. His mother saw him off. He was wearing a pair of white Nikes and loose-fitting green pants. While he was driving, his dad called to check in on him. I called him. I asked, where are you? He said, I'm at a checkpoint and see you calm. I told Sasha, please, Sasha, please, don't go there. Don't go. Head back. He said, okay, okay, and hung up. His father was in eastern Ukraine fighting the Russian advance. It's unclear exactly where Alexander was at the time. That's the only thing we talked about, and that's the last time we spoke. Somewhere between 9 and 10 a.m. that morning, a number of people in the village heard a large explosion. Tatiana Barashovitz works at a local supermarket, which closed early as Russian forces pressed deeper into their village. She decided to make a dash home on her bicycle. And as she rode home, she saw a car on fire. A body was laying next to it, in the middle of the road. I stopped. I wanted to check if he was alive, but it was obvious that he wasn't. I didn't see the head, but the hand and legs were twisted unnaturally. Alexander's green pants were partially burnt off, exposing blackened flesh below the knee. His white Nike sneakers were nowhere to be seen. The fire had burned them off. I started trembling, 
thinking why would they kill a person like that. I started crying. My husband was waiting for me, but I couldn't ride the bicycle anymore. That evening, Anya Breus hadn't heard from her brother. It had been hours. She began posting on social media and asking if anyone had seen him. I wrote up a missing person post with a photo of my brother in his car and where he was heading. That night, a stranger passed the video of the crime scene to Anya Breus. It had been circulating on social media. After she forwarded it to Alexander's best friend, Trushko, he had no doubt it was Alexander. Just seeing his body, it's enough. There is nothing to be discussed. I just, you just, just feel it. We knew much more about the crime than when we'd first started. Who Alexander was. We'd met his family, his friends, his dog. We knew why he was on the road and roughly when he died. But still, we knew almost nothing about the essential question for war crimes prosecutors. How was he killed? For that, we would need an eyewitness. We canvassed houses in Nova Basan for potential eyewitnesses, but many homes weren't occupied. But then, a breakthrough. A man approached us. I want to show you what they did to my house, he said. His name was Alexander Holod. We'd knocked on his door before, but he hadn't been home. This time, he invited us in. His place, which stood across the street from the wreckage of Alexander's vehicle, was dusty and dark inside. No electronics, no carpeting, and since the war, an empty dwelling. Holod had something important to tell us. He said he was an eyewitness to the killing and began describing what he saw on the morning of February 28th as the column of Russian armored vehicles descended on his village. I simply heard the noise, the increasing noise they're coming. Okay, the first column that I saw, it was five BTRs on the distance from one another. As the Russian forces entered the area, he saw soldiers leave armored vehicles known as BTRs and spread out throughout the neighborhood. Later, he saw a man's car coming from the direction of Bobrovitsa. It was Alexander's car the same burnt-out car right outside his home. Three BTRs were ahead of Alexander on the road, and he pulled up alongside the fourth. He stopped the car, he exited the car, and he stood like in a, in a full scale, and he started to quarrel with them about something. He started to say to them something like, what are you doing here, and why are you doing this? As Alexander was talking, two soldiers positioned themselves behind him. One of the soldiers had a machine gun, and another an assault rifle. The one with the rifle was tall, Holod said. And then, without warning, the soldier opened fire on Alexander. So the guy fell on the road? Brain splashed and blood. And the, the BTR, the, the number four that was standing here, it turned the turret and hit the car. That shot from the BTR destroyed the car. And that's what Holod said happened to Alexander. Alexander's body lay in the street for a month as his family desperately tried to retrieve him. But the tide of war was changing. At the beginning of April, Ukrainian forces made their way into Nova Basan, meaning it was finally possible to retrieve Alexander's body.
We had pieced together what happened to Alexander. Finding his killers was going to be more difficult, but the smallest things can lead to a breakthrough. On Facebook, we found one more video taken from Nova Basan. It showed Russian forces moving through the village on the day Alexander was killed. So we tracked down the woman who took it. Olena Bondarenko, along with her small dog, welcomed us into the furniture store where she works in Kyiv. After the war started, Bondarenko fled the capital city for the home her family owned in Nova Basan, hoping there would be less fighting in the small village. On the morning of Alexander's death, she stood outside in a state of shock as armored vehicles rolled by. And she showed us a second video she took. As vehicles pass by, an armed soldier appears in the frame and aims a rifle at her, causing her to gasp before firing off shots in her direction. She drops to the floor, and her father pulls her away. Later, she noticed something unusual about the vehicles on the video. They were new tanks with the letter O. On TV, they were only talking about Z and V. I told the Ukrainian military about these vehicles with the letter O. They were totally different. It was a different type of armored vehicle, and they wore a different colored uniform. That O marking on the armored vehicle in Elena's video was crucial to understanding which Russian units were on the ground. We reached out to every corner of the Ukrainian government we thought might be able to help us find the units in Nova Pasan. Intelligence agencies, police, prosecutors, and we showed them what we'd found. They told us that the letter O meant that the vehicles were from units in Russia's central military district. In that district, there were some prime suspects. The specific units were the 15th, the 21st, and the 30th. We needed more help to find out the exact brigades that were in Nova Basan the day Alexander was killed. There are people who track military equipment just by scouring all the information that's publicly available. People like Tom Bullock. He's an analyst at Jane's, a company that monitors militaries all around the world. Part of my work when I started this was building out guides for how to identify different Russian military units. He said that the damage to Alexander's car in the videos matches Holod's story. So something similar to the BTR's cannon could probably do similar damage. So it would be reasonable if we had an eyewitness who said the BTR fired on this car, that this is consistent with the damage that you see. Yes. Next, we showed him Olena Bondarenko's videos of the Russian vehicles. Much like cars, BTRs come in all sorts of models. So in this video, you're seeing the rear of a BTR-82A. 82A. We had another clue, and it was a crucial one. The fact that we can identify that that's a BTR-82 Type A is significant because there's only two brigades that actually field that equipment, and those are the 15th and the 30th Brigade. George Barros has also been tracking Russian units daily. He works for the Institute for the Study of War. Both of our experts agreed. The armored vehicles model revealed a lot about what was going on in Nova Basan that day. Russian military doctrine suggests that these BTRs and these brigades, the 15th and the 30th, would have been used for clearing operations. They're walking down the main stretch of the village, what it looks like, and they're checking, you know, house to house. They're peeking over fences. And what they're probably doing is it's a clearing operation. It felt like a breakthrough. We had found the units that were most likely responsible for Alexander's death. 
and inside those units was the person that pulled the trigger. How close could we get to him? The Russian troops in Nova Basan were not wearing insignia or patches that identified who they were or where they came from. I think what's useful to say is the Russian ground force that actually deployed to around Ukraine back in February was like 120,000 people. We were trying to find just one of those 120,000 soldiers. But we narrowed our list of suspects to just two units, which had far fewer soldiers. So that means that we can narrow it down to a discrete pool of we're looking at one to eight battalions, which narrows down the search quite significantly. Yeah, so we, we can narrow it down to about 4,000 people? Roughly, yeah. 4,000 soldiers. Somewhere in that group was the person we were looking for. Our eyewitness, Holod, said he saw five BTRs in the immediate vicinity when Alexander was killed. Each vehicle has a capacity of 10 soldiers. So, the killer was among a group of about 50 people who passed through Nova Basan on the morning of February 28th. But we'd reached our limit. We couldn't get the actual names of those 50. We could name one person, the military officer who was officially responsible for the units. It's very clear that at that point in time in Nova Basan, we saw significant elements in that area, likely commanded by Russian Colonel General Alexander Lapin. Alexander Lapin the man in charge of those who killed Alexander and blew up his car. If all of the killings and shootings around Nova Basan are compiled, investigators could argue that the atrocities were systematic and widespread, and the responsibility of the commander. They could prosecute him for war crimes. For now, we couldn't narrow it down any further. Even though we had spent months conducting close to 100 interviews and developing sources, and this was just for one war crime, there are around 50,000 war crimes under investigation in Ukraine. It's an overwhelming task. Roman Avramenko heads the Ukrainian NGO Truth Hands, which documents and investigates war crimes. Yeah, frankly speaking, I think it's not possible to establish justice for all the cases of war crimes committed in the course of full-scale invasion. So it falls to Ukrainian investigators to show that individual war crimes are part of a larger pattern. But the Ukrainian system is swamped. And there are signs that Ukraine and the world will fall short, stifled by a lack of resources, the sheer number of cases, and the degradation of evidence during war. Alexander's story illustrates all of these aspects. Four months after Alexander was killed, we went with his sister and mother to his grave. There were violets around the dirt mound where his body lay at rest. That day, Alexander's mother remembered one more thing about her son. Last year, when Alexander, he was returning home, he was flying through Netherlands. And uh, he knew that I love flowers, so he had some spare time, and he bought me those tulips, seeds there. And this year, 10 out of 10, all of them, they bloomed. So they bloomed exactly on the Mother's Day, and they were blooming exactly for 21 days. Dutch tulips, blooming after his death. Tim Mack, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with kitchen products, too. 
featuring a curated selection of brands, including Dyson, KitchenAid, and UGG. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at keepernpr.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I believe we pushed the boundaries of Christian ethics and compromised the high court's promise to administer equal justice. A former anti-abortion rights activist says the leaked Roe versus Wade decision may have been part of a longer history of Supreme Court leaks. It's Thursday, December 8th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, what we're learning from testimony on Capitol Hill today. Also, protests in China seem to be fizzling out, but they still signal a new challenge for Chinese leadership. This is the first time I've heard the Chinese language being used in a public setting in such a radical fashion. How the social contract between China's rulers and younger generations may be changing. And remembering the co-founder of Stax Records, who died this week at the age of 92. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House is awaiting Brittany Griner's arrival in the U.S. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre addressed reporters a short time ago about the U.S. agreement with Russia to release Griner as part of a prisoner exchange involving a notorious Russian arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death. NPR's Charles Mainz has more from Moscow. Russia's foreign ministry confirmed the prisoner trade in a press release saying Moscow had exchanged Brittany Griner for convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot at an airport in Abu Dhabi after intense negotiations. Griner had been serving out a nine-year sentence on drug smuggling charges the U.S. says were politically motivated. Boot was nearly halfway through a 25-year prison term in the U.S. that Russia has similarly criticized. President Biden later confirmed the trade, saying Griner was safe and on her way home. He also said the U.S. had not forgotten about Paul Whelan, a former Marine who remains in jail in Russia, despite recent U.S. efforts to include him in a wider exchange. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. Companies are planning to invest billions of dollars in a hydrogen plant in Texas to help the U.S. fight climate change. Bears Michael Copley reports it would be the biggest plant of its kind in the U.S. The AES Corporation and Air Products say they'll invest $4 billion in a hydrogen plant in North Texas that'll run on electricity from wind and solar farms. So far, it's been unaffordable to power big hydrogen plants with renewables. But incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act that Democrats passed this year are expected to cut costs. Hydrogen has the potential for cutting carbon emissions in trucking and heavy industry by replacing their use of fossil fuels. 
The companies say the plant should be online in 2027. The Biden administration set a goal to zero out U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. Michael Copley, NPR News. More than 1,100 people in the New York Times newsroom union are staging a day-long walkout today. NPR's David Folkenflik explains the strike represents the most tangible work action at the Times in decades. The primary hang-up is over pay. Journalists at the Times want a raise of about 5.5% for each of four years covered in the contract. The newspaper is offering half that. The union has been working without a contract for close to two years, even as the Times appears flush with cash. It just paid more than a half billion dollars for The Athletic and is on track to 15 million paying digital subscribers by the end of 2027. Top executives, meanwhile, have received big raises and they've bought back stock to further boost share price. The journalists ask if they don't get to share in the good fortunes now, when will they? The New York Times notes it has made concessions on retirement and health care and calls the strike disappointing and drastic. David Folkenflik, NPR News. The number of people filing first-time jobless claims took a slight bump up last week, rising by 4,000 to 230,000 for the week ending December 3rd. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 183 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Research from Boston's Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is offering hope for young women with breast cancer who want to become pregnant. These women often delay pregnancy for years while they take hormone-blocking pills. But a new study suggests women can afford to take a two-year break from these drugs to get pregnant without raising their short-term risk of cancer coming back. Dana-Farber doctor Ann Partridge led the study. These findings, I think, are very encouraging and reassuring for select young women who are interested in having babies after breast cancer in the hormone-positive setting. About 9% of women in the study who paused hormone blockers saw their cancer return. That's similar to the rate seen in women in a second study who stayed on hormone-blocking therapy. Boston College is banning the use of e-scooters and other electronic transportation devices on campus starting in two weeks. In an email sent to the campus community yesterday, college officials cite safety concerns to riders, pedestrians, and others. School officials advise students to take the devices with them when they go home for Christmas break. Any banned items found on campus after December 22nd will be confiscated. Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts is trying to break down stigmas surrounding men and mental health. The, the group is hosting an event tonight featuring local musicians and mental health experts. The organization's Jasmine Rodriguez says music goes perfectly with such an important discussion. It's a constructive way to express yourself, to, you know, kind of synthesize your thoughts, uh, your emotions. And it's also a way to connect with other people, too, because, you know, uh, other folks might be experiencing the same thing that you are. Rodriguez says men in particular have a lot of societal obstacles when it comes to discussing their mental health. Tonight's event will be held at the UMass Boston Campus Center. The Atlantic White Shark Conservancy has concluded what it calls a successful 2022 research season. The group says between July and early November, it successfully tagged 31 white sharks off the coast of Cape Cod. This was also the first year the Conservancy used drones to collect video footage of the white sharks. The data it collects is used for scientific research and to improve public safety and educate people about white shark conservation. 
Sports, both the Bruins and the Celtics are off tonight. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 31 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, the highs around 44 degrees. Should be mostly cloudy on Saturday. Slight chance of some rain after 10 a.m. That could mix with some snow after 5, the high around 38. Right now, 45 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Brit Box for lovers of British TV. Offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. We still don't know exactly what led to the leak earlier this year of the Supreme Court's landmark decision overturning decades of abortion rights precedent. But a former anti-abortion rights activist suggests that leak may be part of a much longer history at the high court, a history involving cozy relationships between conservative activists and justice. Justices. The Reverend Rob Shank described that relationship today in testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. Throughout this ordeal, I've had to look deeply at what my cohorts and I did at the Supreme Court. I believe we pushed the boundaries of Christian ethics and compromised the High Court's promise to administer equal justice. And Pierre Sarah McCammon is keeping track of that hearing. She's here now. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Mary Louise. Hey, okay, so why is the committee holding this hearing about leaks on the Supreme Court and why today? Well, you know, there are a lot of questions swirling around about the court's independence and possible outside influence on the court, especially since that leak of the decision overturning Roe v. Wade this year. Now, in response to that leak, this former anti-abortion activist Rob Shank came forward in a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts and interviews with The New York Times. He revealed that back in 2014, when he was leading an evangelical nonprofit, he was told weeks in advance that the decision in the case known as Burwell v. Hobby Lobby would be favorable to conservatives. Now, he says he heard that from a donor named Gail Wright, who had dined at the home of Justice Samuel Alito. In this hearing today, ranking member Jim Jordan, who's a Republican from Ohio, questioned Shank about that story. Mr. Shank, did, uh, did Gail Wright really tell you that? Yes. Justice Alito said he didn't tell her. She said she didn't tell him. But you're sure she told you? Absolutely. Jordan described Schenck's story as eight-year-old secondhand hearsay and suggested it's part of an effort by Democrats to undermine conservative justices. Schenck says he's coming forward in the interest of truth-telling. He said publicly in recent years he's had a change of heart and now opposes what he calls extreme abortion restrictions. Well, and I'm trying to keep track. Did we actually learn more today about what did or did not happen back in 2014? So Shank painted this picture of an intimate spiritual connection that some of these right-wing Christian activists carefully cultivated with the judges. Shank says he recruited and trained people that he describes as stealth missionaries in an effort to influence the judges and bolster their conservative leanings. He says it seemed to work, too. In one instance, Justice Thomas commended me, saying something like, keep up what you're doing. It's making a difference. And Schenck says that closeness was sustained through prayer meetings and other gatherings, sometimes dinners, and occasionally even trips with these activists and donors. Sarah, big picture. The, the, the questions here are about influence on the Supreme Court. Where does that part of the story go? Well, some watchdog groups want Congress to require the court to adopt an ethics code for the judges. Here's House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler. The moral of the story is this. 
Supreme Court justices cannot effectively self-police their own ethics, and we shouldn't expect them to. Democrats want justices to have to disclose gifts and adopt standards for recusing themselves from certain cases. Mm -hmm. That legislation, though, hasn't gotten very far and would likely face a tougher battle in the next Congress. NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Tensions between Republican state leaders in Texas and election officials in the Houston area are at a low point after the 2022 midterms. Republicans are accusing officials in the Democratic-leaning county of improprieties during this past election, which has now led to a criminal investigation. But officials in Houston say this probe is part of a multi-year Republican effort to intimidate the county. For more details, we're joined now by NPR's Ashley Lopez. Hey, Ashley. Hey there. Okay, so let's start with this. What exactly are Republicans alleging happened in Houston during this past election? Well, state officials heard through interviews with election judges and actually some of their own inspectors that Harris County, which encapsulates most of the Houston area, had various issues during the midterm election this year. That includes a delay in getting some polling sites opened, paper ballot shortage shortages, as well as staffing issues. And state leaders, including Governor Greg Abbott and the Secretary of State's office, asked a local district attorney to launch a criminal investigation into what happened. Wait, but staffing issues and limited resources affect elections pretty often, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. why? Why do Republicans think this rises to the level of criminality? I mean, we don't really have a good idea yet. State election officials say they're handing over evidence to the DA on this case. But what we do know is that for these kinds of crimes, there would have to be evidence that local election officials intended to withhold resources and intended to create problems for voters for any criminal charges to actually make sense. And Harris County attorney Chris Menefee told me these issues were the result of human error and the fact that Harris County is like one of the most populous counties in the country. When elections are at this scale, he says it's very common to have some of these issues. I'm sure when the smoke clears on this, you're not going to find any examples of people trying to break the law or trying to sabotage our elections. Instead, you're going to find errors uh, in, in a huge county with good people trying to do good work. Menefee says he thinks this is all political. Harris County has become more Democratic in recent years, but, you know, they've also had a lot of problems with their elections, including thousands of mail ballots not being counted on time during this past March primary. Well, to be fair, I mean, considering that there have been issues in recent elections, what is the harm in conducting a criminal investigation? Yeah, I mean, so voting rights experts have a couple of concerns. I talked to Daniel Griffith. He's a senior policy director for Secure Democracy USA, which is an election policy advocacy group. And he says what's happening in Texas is actually part of what he sees as a recent and larger trend in Republican-led states of criminalizing parts of the election process. These issues, I think, are being used to a certain extent to justify uh, this additional involvement of law enforcement, which is something that we're seeing in Texas, but we're also seeing clearly in Florida with the creation of the new election crimes unit there, the expansion of law enforcement uh, investigatory power in Georgia. And he says overly involving law enforcement in the administration of elections could end up intimidating voters and election workers. And he says it could end up being harder to find people to run elections. And also, I mean, I guess it would be a problem that state leaders and the state's largest county are having this level of acrimony. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good thing. Griffith says ideally state leaders should be working with Karis County officials to solve problems. They should be talking. That means communicating about getting more resources and training or whatever they need. State election officials, I should note, do work with Harris County and they did help them out in some cases during this past election. But Griffith says the atmosphere created by this criminal investigation is not ideal for any working relationship. That is NPR's Ashley Lopez. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yeah, thank you. 
the founder of one of the great American record labels has died. Jim Stewart founded Stax Records with his sister in 1957, originally as Satellite Records. He produced this hit. Stewart died this week at the age of 92. Stax produced some of the most memorable soul and R&B music of the 20th century. NPR's Netta Ulibi has our remembrance. Jim Stewart was a white, blue-eyed Tennessee farm boy who wanted his label to release music like this. Stewart was a fiddle player. He did not know anything about black music. He loved Elvis Presley and thought maybe another local label could share Sun Records' success. But he set up in a mostly black Memphis neighborhood and recorded a local personality who walked in with his talented teenage daughter. Rufus and Carla Thomas were the first stacked stars. Playing alongside them was a high school student named Booker T. Jones. Much later, Jones told WHYY's Fresh Air what made the stack sound special. It's a simple, earthy sound born out of blues, country, and jazz roots, and also gospel. It was a sound that we consciously tried to keep simple and with a lot of feeling. For Stacks, Memphis was a cultural crossroads, influenced by Nashville, New Orleans, and the Mississippi Delta. Unlike Motown in Detroit and most Southern institutions at the time, it was integrated. White and Black musicians played together, and it was the same behind the scenes. You know, I did almost everything at Stacks Records during those days that was legal to do. Deanie Parker went from selling records to becoming an executive and ran the Stacks Museum. In 2003, she told NPR about all the musicians she'd worked with. Johnny Taylor and Albert King, Booker T and the MGs, Isaac Hayes, and the Bar Hayes, and the list goes on and on. Stax had more than 200 R&B hits through the 1960s. Eventually, Jim Stewart shared its ownership with its black head of promotions. But in 1967, Otis Redding died in a plane crash along with five other Stax musicians. The next year, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated just a mile from the studios at the Lorraine Hotel, a home away from home for Stax talent. Soon after, the company crumbled. Sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. As Deanie Parker explained, Stax relied on Atlantic Records for distribution. There was a handshake deal, if you will, between Jim Stewart and the administrators with Atlantic Records that resulted in Atlantic Records being able to maintain our catalog. By maintain, she means own. Atlantic got sold to Warner in 1967 and Stax lost its masters. The label filed for bankruptcy in 1975. Jim Stewart never recovered. But when Booker T. Jones and the MGs were added to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992, Stewart introduced them, remembering making the song Behave Yourself. I let the tape roll. And after one take, Behave Yourself was complete. And we all got very excited. But the record needed a B-side, so they improvised around a little song called Green Onions. I think we almost wore the tape out that night listening to it. It was a day that I'll always remember. Jim Stewart helped bring the world music it will always remember. Netta Ulibi, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 44 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, Secretary of State Antony Blinken hosts his counterparts from Finland and Sweden who are still trying to get Turkey on board for their NATO aspirations. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up uh, half a percent at 33,781. The S&P was up three-quarters of a percent to close at 39.64. And the Nasdaq was up 1.1% to end the day at 11,082. In business news, Boston-based labor attorney Shannon Liss Reardon has filed a new lawsuit against Twitter. The suit alleges the company's mass layoffs last month disproportionately affected women. The complaint says about 57% of all female employees were laid off, while 47% of men in the company lost their jobs. The company has not responded to a request for comment on the suit. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 31 degrees. At least sunny tomorrow. The highs around 44. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Finland and Sweden are still waiting to join NATO. The U.S. was hoping that they would be in by now to show a united front against Russia's war in Ukraine. But Turkey has been holding up their membership and trying to get concessions, including a tougher line against Kurdish militants. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the war in Ukraine has been a strategic failure for Russian President Vladimir Putin. We know that he's failed at weakening our alliance. Uh, Indeed, he's only made NATO stronger and bigger. Well, soon to be bigger. Secretary Blinken hosted his counterparts from Finland and Sweden, saying those countries are ready to bring their strengths to the NATO alliance. Hungary's parliament still needs to ratify their membership and plan to do that in February. Turkey is the major holdout and has yet to give NATO a clear timeline. Finland's foreign minister Pekka Havisto told NPR outside the State Department today that he's hoping Turkey won't put this off until after their elections next year. When we have a war in Europe, it's it's very crucial that things can be done quite rapidly and and, uh, also that NATO's open-door policy prevails, that it exists also in the 
time of the crisis and, and particularly when there are two members, Finland and Sweden, that in my understanding fulfill very well the NATO criteria. They're also fulfilling Turkey's demands. Sweden recently extradited a Kurdish man who allegedly has links to the militant group the PKK, and Sweden's foreign minister Tobias Bilstrom says his country has taken other steps laid out in a deal with Turkey. We have done a lot, and we believe that we are very close to that point where we will be able to say that all the conditions are met, and then the Turkish parliament will be able to ratify uh, our accession protocol and we will become NATO members. He's planning to travel to Ankara soon. NATO Secretary General was there recently, saying that Finland and Sweden have done their part, and he warned that it's important to finalize their membership to prevent any misunderstanding in Moscow. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This week, China took steps to move away from its draconian zero-COVID policy. This less than two weeks after street protests against the policy shook the nation. China's leaders quickly put an end to those protests, the biggest against the government since the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. But the fact that protests happened at all presents a new challenge for Chinese President Xi Jinping. My co-host, Wana Summers, asked two China observers to weigh in. Yang Yang Cheng grew up in China in the 1990s and is now a fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. And Mary Gallagher directs the Center for Chinese Studies at the University of Michigan. Chung noted that many of last month's demonstrations were led by young people. A lot of them are college-educated youth who demonstrated in the streets of some of the biggest cities. However, predating that, there were also the migrant workers at Foxconn factories who were having violent clashes with security forces and breaking out of their confined factories. And so the, uh, w- when we speak about the young people, we should uh, have an idea that demonstrations are not just about uh, shouting slogans um, in an abstract form about democracy or free expression. There are also very concrete concerns. Professor Gallagher, you have been following China for a number of decades. From your vantage point, is the relationship between China's older rulers and the young people who make up this generation changing? This younger generation, I think, has a lot of concerns, not just about the most recent lockdowns and also the fire in Xinjiang that led to the deaths of a number of people because the apartment building was barricaded and the firefighters couldn't get in. They have really considerable economic concerns. So it goes back to, I think, just a general feeling that the economy is no longer working out in the same way that it had been for the earlier generations of reform. But in this protest, we also see workers and students connecting these livelihood issues directly to the political system and directly to Xi Jinping himself. And that's something that we really haven't seen since 1989. Do either of you see the potential for this being the start of a widespread democratic movement like the one that we saw in Tiananmen Square back in 1989? I mean, for me personally, I am very skeptical that this these protests could evolve in that direction, not because there isn't a feeling from below that people are upset and that people do want change. I I do think that that is the case, but I do not believe that the government will ever tolerate protests to become as large and as dynamic as they were in 1989. 
And we already see that, just a hugely increased police presence. I think people are learning very quickly this message that these things won't be tolerated. I think, well, I wasn't born during uh, d- during the protests in 89 yet, but I think um, I've grown a bit wary about um, this public imagination that whenever there is some kind of a widespread um, demonstration in China the imme- or in the Chinese territories, including Hong Kong, the immediate analogy is Tiananmen. However, for up to a million people to gather in the nation's capital, it requires a certain degree of freedom in society. And and at that time, a, a a lot of that was predicated on fractions within the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party that some some were rather more liberal and sympathetic to the protesters, which included both students and workers. And now what we've seen is that Xi Jinping has consolidated power really to an unprecedented level um, for the past few decades. And so that condition is not there. To either of you, what do you think it is that has emboldened young people of this generation in China to speak out in a way that we have not seen from some other generations? These are students that and workers who did not experience the 1980s. They did not experience a China that was closed. They experienced only successful, integrated, global China. And up until the reign of Xi Jinping, when he took over in 2012, 2013, there were really very few political constraints on them in the sense that as long as they didn't oppose the government, they had wide spread kind of social and economic freedom, as well as cultural freedom in terms of how they consumed social media. And it's only the recent years that we've seen this really diminish and close down. So I I agree with Yang Yang of these protests, they come out and are sparked by zero COVID, but they go, I think, more directly to a feeling that the youth have that China is no longer opening, that China is closing, and that they are you know, the generation that's going to have to go through this. And it's it's really, the, the idea of a political awakening is, is really right. I had a student yesterday say to me that until she saw these protests, she had never heard the general secretary of the party be condemned. She had never heard mm-hmm. that in her life. Yeah, it is the same for me as well. This is the first time I've heard the Chinese language being used in a public setting in such a radical fashion in some of these protest slogans. And that by itself is an exercise of agency and is a manifestation of power that shows potential and possibilities. Mary Gallagher directs the Center for Chinese Studies at the University of Michigan. And Yang Yang Chung is a fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 44 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from National Security Council spokesman John Kirby about the release of WNBA star Brittany Griner from Russian detention. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 31 degrees. Of sunshine tomorrow, the high around 44. Mostly cloudy on Saturday. Slight chance of some rain after 10 a.m. That could mix in with some snow after 5 o'clock. The highs around 38 degrees.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story, live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at wbur.org events. Sponsored in part by Barely Read Books. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. American basketball star Brittany Griner is finally heading home from a Russian prison after the Biden administration brokered a prisoner swap today that's been in the works for months. In exchange for Griner's release, Moscow will get notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. But the prisoner exchange also carries a heavy price with U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, still detained in Russia on spying charges that his family and the U.S. government call baseless. Secretary of State Tony Blinken says Russian officials were unwilling to make Whelan part of the deal, but he reassured Whelan's family the fight to free him will not stop. We will stay at it. We continue to work uh, with the Whelan family, who've been extraordinarily gracious, and we hold them in our thoughts and prayers always, but especially today. It was Griner's imprisonment on drug charges that brought unprecedented attention to those wrongfully detained, including Whelan. Friends and teammates in Phoenix, Arizona, are anxiously awaiting Griner's return home after 10 months. From member station KJZZ, Phil Latzman reports. In a statement, Griner's WNBA team, the Phoenix Mercury, said it was joyously celebrating her release while expressing deep gratitude and grief for the time lost. Arizona Congressman Greg Stanton was involved in negotiations for her release. He regrets they failed to also win freedom for another American detained in Russia, Paul Whelan. There's going to be critics. Uh, of the agreement that was made. But the point is, is that whether it's me, you, or anyone listening to this that could ever be in this horrific situation, the message is we are going to do what it takes to bring our fellow Americans who are wrongfully detained home. Kreiner was detained in Moscow in February for possession of a marijuana vape cartridge and had been serving a nine-year sentence in a Russian penal colony. For NPR News, I'm Phil Latzman in Phoenix. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Sports betting is one step closer to becoming a reality at the Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission today voted unanimously to award Encore Boston with the state's first license to offer sports wagering. Encore still must meet a few other conditions in the permitting process. The Gaming Commission plans to launch retail sports wagering in January. The Environmental Protection Agency says that the company cleaning up the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant in Plymouth may not dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. In a letter to the company, Holtec, the EPA said that unauthorized discharges into the bay would be a violation of the Clean Water Act. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, some environmental advocates worry that a warning from the EPA won't be enough to stop the company. Andrew Gottlieb, executive director of the nonprofit Association to Preserve Cape Cod, applauds the EPA's move, but says the group will also seek an injunction to prevent the dumping. 
He says discharging contaminated water into the bay would cause irreparable harm to the region's economy. If you're deciding where you're going to buy seafood from or go fishing, then you have a choice between a place that's been exposed to radioactive waste and one that hasn't. You're going to pick the one that hasn't. In a statement, Holtec said the company, quote, remains committed to being open and transparent as they work with regulators. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A Quincy man charged with threatening an Asian family and hitting one of the family members with his car is being confined to his home for now. Today, a judge ruled 77-year-old John Sullivan can await trial at home with GPS monitoring. Sullivan has pleaded not guilty to a charge of assault based on race. Prosecutors say he intentionally hit and injured a man with his car last week in Quincy after an altercation in which Sullivan yelled slurs at the victim's relatives. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bouldering Project in Union Square, offering a learn-to-climb program with instruction, rental shoes, and a one-month membership. Details at bostonboulderingproject.com. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 31 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 44. Mostly cloudy on Saturday. Slight chance of some rain after 10 a.m. That could mix in with some snow after 5 o'clock. The high is around 38 degrees. Cloudy and 37 degrees on Sunday, maybe some rain after 4 p.m., and a chance of some snow early on Monday, otherwise mostly sunny. The highs will be around 37. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been freed after spending most of this year in Russian detention. Today, her wife, Sherelle Griner, thanked the Biden administration for bringing this dark chapter in the family's life to an end. She also took care to point out there is still work to do. Today, my family is whole, but as you all are aware, there's so many other families who are not whole. And so BG's not here to say this, but I will gladly speak on her behalf and say that BG and I will remain committed to the work of getting every American home. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby joins us now live from the White House. Hey there. Hi, how are you tonight? I'm all right. Thank you. I want to start with the intense negotiations. That's President Biden's term, the intense negotiations that secured this release. Can you share detail on the final hours as it came together? This really, this deal really kind of came to fruition over the last week or so, Mary Louise. uh, uh, And it, and it, it itself was the culmination of literally months of back and forth with the Russians on Brittany's case I've, and Paul's Well, that's as part well. of why I asked, because the outlines of this deal were floated over the summer and Russia didn't bite. Why not? There, there, we had floated a very serious proposal, uh, didn't go uh, anywhere for a little while, and we uh, began to then float uh, alternate proposals. Again, with the minds, uh, with, in our minds, getting both 
Brittany and Paul out. Uh, so we were trying to be as flexible as we could, but but it really this particular deal uh, kind of came to to closure in the last week or so, and it was apparent to us that it was either this or nothing. Uh, this was the deal we could get, and now was the moment we could get it. Um, and as we've said before, we felt like we had a moral obligation to take the Russians up on this to at least get uh, one of the two uh, home. Um, you referenced there that there's another American, a former Marine, Paul Whelan, who is still in Russia. He's been detained there since 2018. Are, are you um, are you confirming there that the U.S. push was to make this a, a two-for-one, that, that you wanted to bring him home same time? I, 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 I don't want to get too much in the details of the negotiations in, in terms of the, the specifics, but I can t- I can assure you that uh, our efforts were designed to get both of them home. That was the goal, and we offered uh, different permutations of deals uh, to the Russians uh, with that as our uh, uh, our, our desired outcome. And uh, again, we just weren't able to get that done today. Uh, it was clear to us that the furthest we were going to be able to, to go was just getting Brittany, Brittany out uh, from Mr. Boot. And so, so we ended up taking that deal. But I want to stress that we are still uh, in active discussions with the Russians now about Paul. Um, we're not giving up on that. We're, as the president said, we're going to stay at that task. What leverage does the U.S. have now that Victor Boot's release is no longer available as a bargaining chip? The Russians treated... Paul separate, separately, d- differently, uh, uniquely, because of the sham espionage charges that they levied against him. So in their minds, they uh, they never really were that interested in um, in uh, Mr. Boot for for Paul. Um, uh, they were only interested in Mr. Boot for Griner, uh, for uh, Brittany Griner. Excuse Griner, me. Yeah. Um, so. Um, so they've 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 held him apart as something separate. They put him in a special category, uh, and uh, and that has made uh, the negotiation process difficult. Uh, but we're like I said, uh, we're not considering it impossible. We're going to keep we're going to keep working. Still at working it. on that front. Uh, let's stay with Victor Boot, the convicted Russian arms dealer who has just been swapped for Brittany Griner. Are you convinced he no longer poses a national security threat to the United States? Anytime we do um, a swap like this, uh, we do a national security assessment uh, of the of the implications. That was done in this case, and what I can tell you is uh, we're going to stay vigilant. Uh, nothing's more important to the president than our national security, uh, and we're going to. We're going to defend that national security uh, at every turn and as appropriate. And um, uh, whether that regards the behavior and conduct of Mr. Boot now that he's a free man or anyone else that this might is, threaten, this our, is, threaten our security. Forgive my jumping in. This is a guy nicknamed the Merchant of Death who Senator Bob Menendez, the Democrat who chairs the Foreign Relations Committee, right. is calling is calling his release a, quote, deeply disturbing decision. This was the deal we could get. Now was the moment we could get it. Uh, We did a national security assessment, but we're going to stay vigilant. We're not going to take anything for granted. Look, nobody's uh, doing uh, uh, touchdown dances here uh, about the fact that Mr. Boot is a free man. He still had another six or so years to serve. It was never a life sentence. So at some point he was going to get out. Uh, It's a little earlier than than planned, but the alternative would have been to leave – Brittany Griner in a penal colony in Which, Russia for a crime she didn't commit. Which no one would have wanted to exactly. see. Thank you so much for your time today. That's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. Thanks. Thank you. You know, Mary Louise, it turns out parrots just want to feel included in conversation just like anyone else. Huh. Really? 
That is Yoko, a cockatoo, that recently participated in a research survey looking at the phenomenon of vocal mimicry in parrots, what we often refer to when we say that parrots are, quote, talking. Over 900 pet parrots were included in the survey published this week in the journal Nature. Lauren Benedict, professor at the University of Northern Colorado, worked on it. She says participants were asked a number of questions about their parrot companions. How many words does your parrot use? How many phrases do they say? And then how many non-language-based sounds do they mimic from their human environment? Researchers found the number of words a parrot learns can vary widely. And even though parrots might not necessarily understand the word's meaning, they have a knack for timing. That's because they can pick up on context. They know when it's right to chime in, and they even know what to say. I love you, too. Yoko again. (laughs) She belongs to another researcher on the study, Chris Dallin, who is an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown. We have um, blinds that we put around him, which he knows, okay, we're putting him to bed. And he says, good night, Yoko bird. Part of the reason these birds mimic human speech is because they want to feel like they belong to a flock, Dallin says. And when they are domesticated, that flock happens to be made up of humans. They're going to be doing mimicry of whatever is most socially relevant. So for these parrots, it's words. We are talking to each other. We are talking to them. That is what's socially important for them. The scope of a parrot's vocabulary varies from species to species, says Lauren Benedict. There's a general understanding among parrot enthusiasts out there that uh, African gray parrots might be the best talkers. And our data support that because on average, African greys learned something like 60 words, whereas many other species learned only five to 10. Yvonne England runs an animal sanctuary called Ruffled Feathers, where the birds have lots of space to wander. And she says people often look to adopt parrots because they mimic human speech. But, you know, not all of them do. There's birds that would never utter a single word. It's not a single human word ever. They just look at you like, yeah, no. Also, parrots are not domesticated animals, England and the researchers say. When taken out of captivity and placed among their own in nature, England sees the birds call out to each other and cuddle. That's the heartwarming part, to see these birds find a companion, find a friend, someone to preen, someone to sit with and and enjoy their life with. Aw, parrot friends, we humans are right there with you on that one. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.S. has been pushing to mine more lithium for electric vehicle batteries, but there's a trade-off, as residents have learned near Charlotte, North Carolina, where a big open-pit mine has been proposed. Here's David Borax of member station WFAE. A company called Piedmont Lithium wants to build a mine and processing operation about 30 miles west of Charlotte. Geologist Emily Winter leads the way to a large rock outcrop. So within this rock, it contains spodumene, the mineral, and within that mineral, spodumene contains lithium that we can convert to lithium hydroxide that then goes into batteries. Lithium deposits run through this region in a mile-wide band. For decades, mines here supplied most of the world's lithium until cheaper sources were found in South America and Australia. Now the element is in high demand for electric vehicle batteries, says CEO Keith Phillips. There is very little production of the lithium raw materials or any battery raw materials in the U.S. The potential's there, but it'll take time to bring it online. 
When Piedmont Lithium dedicated its new headquarters this summer, U.S. Senator Tom Tillis was there. The North Carolina Republican says in this scratchy recording that domestic sources of lithium are needed to counter China. They intend to make sure that the Western world is dependent upon them for lithium, for tantalum, for rare minerals, so that they can literally beat us by never firing a shot. Tillis says he supports Piedmont Lithium's new mine as long as it's done in an environmentally responsible way. But that's the catch. Piedmont's plans call for four open-pit mines 500 feet deep. That means demolishing houses, digging up farm fields and woods, and disrupting streams. Some neighbors have sold their land to the mine, but others whose land borders the site are not happy. Locke Bell is a former district attorney who says Piedmont approached him about mining on his land five years ago. He declined after seeing detailed plans. And suddenly I saw these massive mines, open pits. Yeah, and we have enough of that around here that's toxic already. He's talking about old lithium mines nearby that closed in the 1980s and 90s and are now contaminated with arsenic, which occurs naturally in the area's soil and rocks. A few miles away, Warren Snowden has similar concerns. Our issue is on every front. It's water, it's air, it's light pollution, it's noise, it's traffic. Give us a solar farm. Give us a wind farm. Piedmont Lithium still needs key approvals, including state air and mining permits. And there's local political opposition. Chad Brown is chair of the Gaston County Commission, which will have to approve a rezoning for the mine. With the information I have right now, I probably would not call for a vote on this. I would have to have tons of more information just for the, the environmental side and as far as air quality, water quality. The commission updated its zoning rules last year to limit blasting and truck traffic, says Brown. But he's not sure Piedmont will be able to get the electricity and water it needs for mining and processing. Do you see this project actually happening? Well, I think right now you're still at 50-50 just for the simple fact of it's a long way out. Still, CEO Keith Phillips is optimistic. So the permitting process is more involved and it will take longer. And our plan and our hope is that we'll be in production in Carolina in 2026. While Piedmont Lithium pursues that goal, the company has a backup plan. It's building a processing plant in Tennessee with help from a federal grant, and it's counting on mines in Quebec and Ghana to supply lithium. For NPR News, I'm David Borax in Gaston County, North Carolina. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 43 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on All Things Considered, Netflix released three episodes of the long-awaited documentary series Harry and Meghan. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex share their love story in the series. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 31 degrees. Sunny tomorrow with a high around 44. Mostly cloudy on Saturday with a slight chance of rain after 10 a.m. That could mix in with some snow after 5 o'clock. The highs will be around 38 degrees. Uh, chance of some snow early on Monday. Otherwise, it'll be mostly sunny. The highs around 37. Right now, it's 43 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. The city of Somerville will get into the holiday spirit tonight. The city's tree lighting begins at 5 o'clock at City Hall Concourse, so I guess it's already underway. Santa will arrive with a police and fire escort. Then he'll host and meet and greet some high school at the high school cafeteria. That's going on now in Somerville. WBUR supporters include Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving. In Melrose and at BuckaloosGeneralStore.com. The pandemic was great for the tech industry. More remote work meant people needed all the tech necessary to make it happen. That meant a hiring boom. But now Meta, Amazon, and Twitter have all announced job cuts. We saw the real pullback earlier this year. We could see job postings start to come down. Are we living through the tech bust after the pandemic boom? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We're going to stick close to home for the next few minutes to honor a Washington, D.C. TV legend because there are local news reporters and then there's Pat Collins. A witness told me it went down this way. Two guys dressed to steal go into the store. They grab fistfuls of Gore-Tex, handfuls of foul weather gear. They bring it outside to a getaway car. They stuff themselves and their ill-gotten gains into the car and away they go. 76-year-old Pat Collins is a D.C. native. He grew up on H Street, not all that far away from where NPR headquarters are now. After more than 35 years with NBC News 4, Collins has announced his retirement. In his long career, he has covered all kinds of local stories, many of them very serious. Sunday, people out and about, going for walks, going to brunch, then all of a sudden, a barrage of gunfire. But Collins' quirky, dramatic delivery was also tailor-made for fun and the more unusual stories. What did he do? Did he get in a fight at school? No. Did he bring a weapon to the school? No. Did he steal something from the school? No. Nope. Brian got suspended for wearing a banana outfit. I said banana outfit and running around the field during the halftime of the football game last Friday. He had no problem putting himself into his stories like he did for that story about a teen in a banana outfit. Collins interviewed him dressed as a bunch of grapes. Can I ask you something? Why a banana? Why not a grape? I don't know. Potassium is great. Perhaps more than anything, Pat Collins loved to cover a good snowstorm. Finally, we get a snow of consequence. Finally, a stick-worthy snow. Whenever a storm hit the district, Pat Collins was out there with his snow stick ready to measure the latest totals. Barbara, here we are at Connecticut in Fessenden. This was our scene in Snowmageddon. We're back here today. Whatever the topic, a Pat Collins piece was seemingly made to go viral. Take his story about a case of mistaken identity. After a vandal sprayed the words, Mike is a cheater, all over a car that belonged to someone who didn't know Mike. Side windows sprayed here, 
and there and there, it's the wind chill. Boom, boom, and boom. Before long, the Gregory brothers turned Colin's closing message to Mike the Cheater into a song. Mike, 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 Mike. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. But your name, but your name want to start changing your ways. And he has become a beloved segment on HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. No one does local news beat poetry quite like NBC4 Washington's Pat Collins. Five burglaries here in six days. Two on this street. Two on that street. One on a street down around the corner. Collins said when he retires at the end of the year, he'll spend more time with his family. Until then, we'll be watching for that final iconic sign-off. I'm Pat Collins, News 4. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, have produced a new Netflix documentary series about themselves. It's called Harry and Meghan, and its first three episodes are streaming now, with three more episodes to come next week. NPR pop culture correspondent Linda Holmes is here to talk about that series. Hey, Linda. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so it sounds like this is very much Harry and Meghan by Harry and Meghan, right? Like, this is not what we would think of as a traditional documentary, right? That's right. This is from their production company, from their big deal with Netflix. Like a memoir, maybe. It's the their point of view and any viewing of it, you know, obviously should be informed by that understanding. So you do get a lot of their reflections on uh, life inside the family. Here's Harry talking about how he thought he might never find someone to marry. I remember thinking, how can I ever find someone who is willing and capable to be able to withstand all the baggage that comes with being with me? Hmm. Well, what about all the speculation about whether this series would show them condemning members of the royal family? Like, are these first three episodes kind of harsh on Harry's relatives? Well, these first three, which tell the couple's story up to the wedding, say very little about anybody personally. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you can infer things. Harry says at one point that some of the men in his family have been tempted to choose wives who would be right for the role rather than people that they felt destined to be with. Uh, Sorry, yeah. got to take a piece of plastic away from my dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the the list of men he's likely to be talking about is not that long, but he doesn't speak ill of, of his grandmother or brother or father. We, we could come to all that, but so far that's not what this is. Well, if this series is ultimately going to be six hours long and it's not going to go into a lot of that personal drama, what do you think it's trying to do? Well, it's certainly their love story, but maybe even more than that, it's about the relationship between the royal family and the British press. Um, you know, one of the parts I found most interesting was the discussion of this unofficial contract between the family and the press. Um, and that contract is basically that the family gets to live this extravagant life. And in return, the press is entitled to hound them for information about every detail of their lives. Uh, and one of the commentators whose, whose name is uh, Efwa Hirsch poses a question that stuck with me, which is, can a child 
really be born into a contractual relationship with the British press. And that's that's maybe the challenge of Harry's life is that that both his family and the press considered him to be born into that contract. Yeah. Okay. Well, if this is Harry and Meghan by Harry and Meghan, I'm guessing they come out looking pretty good here. Like we're not talking about something hard hitting <laughs> at all. No, it's it's very flattering to them. There's a lot of, um, among other things, a lot of romantic atmosphere when they talk <laughs> about their relationship. Nice. Uh, here she's talking about, she's talking about being late for a date with him early on. Well, I had come back from Wimbledon and, you know, when you get, you get all dulled up and I just wanted to go home and take a shower and then run over looking more like myself. I was like, I don't, you could be as late as you want. I ain't moving. I want to see you again. Aww. So if you do watch this, you know, obviously remember that a documentarian, particularly a, an experienced one like Liz Garbus, who directed this, has a lot of tools from, you know, editing to camera work to lighting and music. So, you know, it's worth asking yourself, who took this picture, who chose this music, how did this come to be documented? Because it is a very, very managed presentation of yeah, them. Yeah. Well, when Queen Elizabeth died, a lot of historians and commentators felt that Britain's history of imperialism was missing from lots of the discussions of her legacy. So, so I'm curious, when Harry and Meghan were talking about the royal family as an institution, does this series touch on that at all? It does. And that, that surprised me a little bit. But in talking about the racism that Meghan experienced, there are experts who speak to race in Britain, particularly black people in Britain and the way that imperialism runs through daily life, it, its history. And, and you know, does the show directly indict Elizabeth for, for not altering the course of that? It doesn't. But does it explain that she was queen for decades while these situations were developing? Yeah. It does. That is NPR's Linda Holmes. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter. In select theaters everywhere tomorrow. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair at 33 Dunster Street. Local crafts for gift-giving December 9th to 11th and 16th to 18th. HarvardSquareHolidayFair.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. WNBA star Brittany Griner was freed in a prisoner swap today. She was serving a prison sentence for drug charges in Russia. It's Thursday, December 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the prisoner swap with Russia that brings Griner home. Meanwhile, American Paul Whelan remains detained in Russia on espionage charges. Also ahead, Indonesia has passed a new criminal code that prevents anyone in the country from having extramarital sex and restricts political freedoms. And Italy's prime minister is suing a journalist for defamation. Stocks close the day higher today. Marketplace is coming up at 6.30 with all the day's business news. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. WNBA star Brittany Griner is heading home after her months-long imprisonment in Russia on drug charges. Griner freed in a high-level prisoner swap where she's being traded for notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. President Biden today announced Griner's release along with Griner's wife Cheryl and other administration officials. People all across the country have learned about Brittany's story, advocated for her release, stood with her through, throughout this terrible ordeal. And I know that support meant a lot to her family. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits. She uh, She's relieved to finally be heading home. Victor Boot, dubbed the Merchant of Death, was exchanged one for one with Griner, while another U.S. citizen, American Paul Whelan, remains detained on espionage charges, which his family and the U.S. government say are baseless. The release of basketball player Brittany Griner in exchange for the Russian arms dealer was facilitated by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, two key allies in the Persian Gulf. NPR's Arab Burwari has more from Dubai. Both countries say they helped mediate the prisoner swap, and they credit their dialogue and ties with both the U.S. and Russia for the successful exchange. Their joint statement said Greiner arrived by private plane from Moscow to the UAE capital Abu Dhabi. They say the swap happened in the presence of specialists from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Officials from the U.S. and Russia then claimed their citizens for transfer. In September, Saudi Arabia's crown prince helped mediate the release of 10 prisoners of various nationalities as part of a larger prisoner swap involving Russia and Ukraine. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. The House has given its final approval for legislation aimed at protecting same-sex marriage. The bill approved 258 to 169. Law requires all states to recognize same-sex unions, a relief for hundreds of thousands of couples who've married since the Supreme Court's 2015 decision legalizing same-sex marriage. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen visited a government printing plant in Fort Worth, Texas today to see some of the first dollar bills that will carry her signature. NPR Scott Horsley reports the bills go into circulation early next year. Yellen jokes she took some time to practice the signature that will appear on billions of bills, mindful that some of her predecessors had notoriously bad handwriting. Former Secretary Jack Lew's signature was once likened to the curly cues atop a hostess cupcake. The new bills also carry the signature of Lynn Malerba, who is the first Native American to serve as U.S. Treasurer. Yellen sees value in that kind of representation. Currency is something we use and we touch every day. And when done right, It can tell us who we are, what we value, and what is possible. The Mint introduced a series of quarters this year, honoring path-breaking women, and plans are in the works to eventually put Harriet Tubman's likeness on the $20 bill. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 183 points. The Nasdaq rose 124 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. 
Local advocates for same-sex marriage say today's passage of the Respect for Marriage Act in the U.S. House of Representatives is a victory for everyone who cares about fair treatment in America. Jansen Wu is executive director of Boston-based GLAAD. Wu says a majority of Americans support equal rights for same-sex couples, but he says there's been growing concern since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. This should not be a controversial issue, but unfortunately the U.S. Supreme Court has thrown marriage equality and LGBTQ rights in their targets, and so um, we are responding appropriately to prevent any further dismantling of our rights. All nine members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic House delegation voted for in favor of the bill, which cleared the Senate last month. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is proposing some changes to the so-called millionaire's tax. Voters passed the constitutional amendment last month. Starting in the new year, it will add a 4% state surtax on incomes above $1 million. WBUR's Yasmin Amer has more. Revenue from the tax is intended to go to education and transportation. Galvin says he wants to set up an education trust to make sure it's spent correctly. He also wants a tax exemption for some elderly residents selling their primary homes. But Andrew Farnitano from the coalition that helped pass the tax says that exemption is unnecessary. Less than 1% of homes generate a gain large enough to be affected by this tax. Um, So we're talking about the largest mansions and vacation homes, um, not middle-class homes, even those that have appreciated in value over the years. Home sellers can deduct up to $500,000 from the tax in addition to renovation costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Federal regulators have authorized the updated COVID vaccine booster from Cambridge-based Moderna for young children. The Food and Drug Administration announced today that children six months through five years will be eligible for the new bivalent shot targeting Omicron and its subvariants once the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention signs off. Today's ruling also applies to the updated Pfizer booster. The Boston Bruins are iconic, and so too is Fenway Park. Those are the comments from NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman today in an online forum with the New England Council. Bettman says bringing the outdoor hockey game known as the Winter Classic back to Boston next year was a no-brainer. Boston's just a great city. There are great sports fans, great hockey in, in Massachusetts and throughout New England, and we're thrilled to be coming back. Bettman points out that the Bruins are one of the six original teams in the league. He also notes that Fenway Sports Group now owns the Bruins' winter classic opponent, the Pittsburgh Penguins. The game will be played on January 2nd at 2 p.m. Bruins are off tonight, so are the Celtics. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The low's around 31. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 44 degrees. Mostly cloudy Saturday. Slight chance of some rain after 10 a.m. That could mix with some snow after 5. The high's around 38. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Nine months ago, basketball star Brittany Griner was arrested on drug charges in Russia. Today, she is on her way home to the U.S. She was swapped for a Russian arms dealer who still had years to go on a U.S. prison sentence. President Biden made the announcement at the White House with Griner's wife by his side. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, 
held under intolerable circumstances. Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. There has been an outpouring of joy over this news from Griner's fans and supporters, but the White House is still facing critical questions about the prisoner swap. I'm joined now by NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez and Moscow correspondent Charles Maines. Hey to both of you. Hey, awesome. Hey there. Okay, so Franco, I mean, this was a pretty dramatic moment this morning, but can we just back up? Tell us how this swap came to pass over many, many months, right? Right. It was an agreement for many, many months. A lot of backroom negotiations between Washington and Moscow. In the end, it was a one-for-one prisoner swap. Griner, as you noted, was swapped for convicted Russian arms trader Victor Boot, which was made at the Abu Dhabi airport in the United Arab Emirates today. Biden actually signed an order cutting short Boot's 25-year sentence. The White House invited Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, to the White House for a meeting with the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. But when she arrived, she was directed to the Oval Office, where President Biden was there to tell her himself that Brittany Griner was coming home. And Charles, how did news of this whole prisoner exchange break in Russia? Well, we learned of this in Moscow from Russia's foreign ministry, which issued a statement saying the trade had taken place after lengthy negotiations. Uh, Russian state TV later aired video from the security services here uh, that showed a smiling grinder, hair now cropped short, uh, signing her release papers, then leaving the prison colony in Mordovia uh, to get on a plane. And there's even a bit where the FSB agents engage Griner on camera. Let's listen. Do you know where I'm heading to? No. No? No. 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 You fly back home. To, to the U.S. To the U.S. Okay. Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. But Charles, I mean, the U.S. has been pursuing this deal for months now, and Russia seemed to be holding out the whole time. What do you think changed here? Well, you know, one of the reasons the Russian government has given all along is that Griner's legal proceedings needed to run their course before any trade could happen. So just last month, Griner exhausted her appeals process and began formally serving out her nine-year prison term. Uh, Now, beyond the legal wrangling, there's little question. Moscow enjoyed the political pressure building on the White House to get Griner home. But there's also a certain logic to the Russian position. You know, her conviction uh, sent Griner to prison, but it, what it also did was open the door, legally speaking, for her to be pardoned right. because Griner had now been convicted of a crime. Exactly. OK, well, this whole detention has been quite high profile, in part because Griner is such an accomplished and well-known athlete. And there has been a lot of activism surrounding her detention. Brinko, can you talk about that piece of this? Like, what was the reaction like to her release? Uh, It's been really big and from so many different sectors of society. Former President Barack Obama said he was grateful for Griner's, quote, long overdue release. The Phoenix Mercury, which is Griner's basketball team, had had a regular count of the days that she was in detention. The team posted, no more days. She's coming home. And at the White House, Griner's wife, Sherelle, was visibly moved. (sighs) So over the last nine months, you all have been um, so privy to one of the darkest moments of my life. And so today I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions. 
Biden acknowledged that there was a lot of pressure that he was under in, you know, different ways. Brittany Griner wrote him a letter this summer saying, quote, I'm terrified I might be here forever. Mm. And as Charles pointed out, progress seemed to have stalled for a few months. But a few weeks ago, Biden said that he had hoped Putin would be more willing to discuss a prisoner exchange after the U.S. midterm elections were over. After the elections. OK, well, Charles... You have followed Greiner's case for months now. You've attended like every stage of her trial in Moscow. Can you just remind us of some of what you saw, what you heard during that time? Yeah, you know, this trial uh, unfolded against the collapse in U.S.-Russian relations over the conflict in Ukraine. And it's a situation that made many feel Greiner was a hostage to geopolitics uh, rather than a defendant in a drug trial. Uh, you know, as to the proceedings, you know, they took place in a small courtroom uh, with six foot nine Griner often in a cage, uh, and it was incredibly hot there. It was over the summer. You know, at one point, a U.S. embassy official nearly fainted from the heat. And yet I was struck uh, by how Griner just handled herself throughout. You know, she was very calm given circumstances. In fact, one of the few times I saw her grow openly emotional uh, was when her Russian teammates and coach came to testify on Griner's behalf. Uh, despite her ordeal, despite everything, you know, there's clearly a lot of affection between them, even now. Yeah. Well, tell us more about Victor Boot, the man exchanged for Griner. Like, why did the Russians want him back so much? Well, Russia has wanted Boot back ever since he was detained, uh, initially in Thailand in a U.S. sting operation in 2008. Uh, Boot has been colorfully labeled the the merchant of death by the media, but, you know, his story is is more complicated. I mean, he's a one-time Soviet military translator who started a global gun-running business, arguably one of the world's most successful ones, uh, providing arms to civil wars in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, uh, even for the U.S. military operations in Iraq for a time. Uh, He he was sentenced to 25 years in prison by a U.S. court in 2011 on narco-terrorism charges. In other words, trafficking weapons that could kill Americans, not that necessarily did. Uh, Either way, Russia's government has always argued he was illegally extradited by the U.S., uh, to the U.S., excuse me, and his case was an example uh, of an American judicial overreach, and his release will certainly be celebrated here as well. Well, Franco, I mean, there's also another U.S. prisoner who's still detained in Russia, Paul Whelan. The White House had made it clear for months, right, like that they wanted Whelan to be part of this trade. And I'm wondering, did they say why Whelan wasn't included? And what have we heard from Whelan's family about this latest news? Well, Paul Whelan's brother, David, said in a statement that he was glad that Griner was on her way home, but that it was also a disappointment for the family and a, quote, catastrophe for Paul. They were thankful, though, that U.S. officials warned them in advance and did note that the Biden administration made the right decision, in their words, to make the deal that was possible rather than waiting for one that wasn't going to happen. That was NPR's Franco Ordonez and Charles Maines. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sex outside of marriage and living together without being married are crimes punishable with jail time under Indonesia's revamped criminal code. Critics say the sweeping revisions threaten a raft of human rights and civil liberties in the world's largest Muslim country. NPR's Julie McCarthy has that story. After years of wrangling, Indonesia's parliament this week overhauled its colonial-era criminal code inherited from its former Dutch administrators. Most controversially, the crime of adultery is expanded to include both sex outside marriage and sex among unmarried couples who cohabitate. 
The changes, says Human Rights Watch Asia director Elaine Pearson, collide with the image President Joko Widodo likes to project of Indonesia as a modern Muslim democracy. The criminal code that just passed is one that will actually violate the rights of women, religious minorities, LGBT people in Indonesia. And so, you know, it's actually a huge setback for human rights in Indonesia. Under the new provisions, a married adulterer can be jailed for one year. Couples living together could face six months in jail. Sociologist and women's rights advocate Gaddis Arivia says many Indonesians could be inadvertently liable because they cannot prove they're married. Millions of couples in Indonesia are already without marriage certificates, especially indigenous peoples or Muslims in rural areas, and because they practice cultural traditional marriage. So if you're implementing this kind of law, they will be affected. The criminal code revisions come as religious fundamentalism deepens across Indonesia. Supporters of the law insist it will gradually be implemented over three years and aims to strengthen the institution of marriage. But critics say the new provisions, which also cover foreign tourists, open the door to selective enforcement. Gaddis Arivia says the changes are meant to appease conservative forces. It is creating fear. It is creating fear in the public's fear. This is what it is about, that if you do this, this will happen to you. LGBTQ rights defender Dede Utomo says he's relieved that the code remains silent on the question of intercourse between same-sex couples. Historically, it's not been criminalized. We didn't have that. And ironically, in the Dutch colonial criminal code, uh, the state had no business in the citizen's bedroom. But Utomo says the provision that most threatens LGBTQ rights is the ban on spreading any ideology that seeks to replace the national principles of unity and tolerance. Ominously, Utomo says his movement has been labeled an ideology. That we actually borrowed from the West, and so we are dangerous to uh, the nationalist state. The criminal code, I mean, I would call it like a big nail in the coffin of uh, free expression, you know, freedom of privacy and democracy. Local governments across the country have enacted laws regulating how women should behave, mandating headscarves, imposing curfews, forbidding straddling a motorcycle. They are now recognized in the overhauled criminal code as legitimate, a move human rights defenders say will ultimately drive away investors and damage Indonesia's international standing. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown, 42 degrees in Boston. It's 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, Italy's Prime Minister is suing writer Roberto Saviano for defamation. Saviano has lived under police protection since 2006 after death threats for his book on the mafia in Naples. That's just ahead here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up a half a percent at 33,781. The S&P up three quarters of a percent to close at 39.64. And the Nasdaq was up 1.1 percent to end the day at 11,082. In other business news, two Boston biotech companies are teaming up in the fight against a rare inherited disease that can cause muscle weakness. Today, Vertex Pharmaceuticals said it is forming a partnership with Entrada Therapeutics. Both companies are based in the seaport. The goal is to develop generic therapies for myotonic dystrophy type 1. Vertex will pay Entrada up to $500 million for the collaboration. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The low's around 31 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The high around 44. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at globesanta.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Italian journalist Roberto Saviano has lived under police protection since 2006 following death threats for his book Gamora. It's about the Neapolitan mafia. Now the government providing him that protection is putting him on trial. NPR's Silvia Pajoli reports that Giorgio Maloney, Italy's new hard-right prime minister, is suing Saviano for defamation. In December 2020, Saviano appeared on a current events TV show that was reporting on the delayed response by Italian authorities to shipwrecked migrants in the Mediterranean. He was shown a video shot a few weeks earlier on board the NGO ship Open Arms during a dramatic rescue mission. A young woman from Guinea was crying desperately. I lose my baby. Why me? The woman's six-month-old baby was ultimately rescued, along with another 110 migrants, but he died before reaching shore. In the TV studio, Sabiano was visibly angered. All you can say is, bastards, how could you, to Maloney and Salvini? Bastards, how is it possible? All this suffering? Okay, they've got a different policy. They're against welcoming migrants, but not in an emergency, in the middle of the sea. When she was in opposition, Giorgia Meloni claimed that under the law of the sea, illegal migrants do not have a right to be rescued while in Italian waters. Matteo Salvini is currently on trial for having blocked rescued migrants from disembarking and holding them in dire conditions when he was interior minister in 2019. 
Meloni is now prime minister. Salvini is her deputy and has joined Meloni in suing Saviano for calling them bastards. If found guilty, Saviano could face up to three years in jail. Following a first brief hearing last month, Saviano spoke outside the courthouse. I'm on trial for having sharply criticized Giorgia Maloney and Matteo Salvini, whom I consider those most responsible for the constant political propaganda waged against the most desperate human beings, those most vulnerable and unable to defend themselves, refugees. Journalists and writers in Italy and beyond have expressed solidarity with Saviano. Lawyer Antonio Nobili has represented him for over a decade. He points out that Italy has repeatedly delayed ratification of a European Union directive that calls for the elimination of prison sentences in defamation cases against journalists, human rights defenders, as well as researchers and academics. And Penn International, the writer's association that defends freedom of expression, sent an open letter to Prime Minister Meloni urging her to drop the case against Saviano. The latest charges it added are sadly representative of a worrying trend in Italy where journalists and writers work in the knowledge they might be sued and imprisoned for what they say or what they write. In an interview with the Daily Corriere della Sera last month, Meloni said she has no intention of dropping the lawsuit now that she's prime minister, and she's convinced the case will be treated impartially. Lawyer Antonio Nobile is skeptical. By not dropping the case, Maloney is requiring the judge to rule if and how extensively a prime minister can be criticized. We're in a situation where the executive is putting intense pressure on the judiciary. Saviano has given his lawyer instructions not to limit himself to a narrow defense of freedom of speech and intends to call numerous politicians as witnesses. Nobile says Saviano wants to turn his trial for defamation into a trial against the migration policies implemented by all recent Italian governments. The next hearing is December 12th. Silvia Poggioli, NPR News. Rome. This is NPR News. Cinematic nostalgia comes in all shapes and sizes this holiday season. Steven Spielberg's latest movie, The Fablemans, is about how he became a filmmaker. The comedy Babylon will soon offer a portrait of Hollywood in the Roaring Twenties. And today, we have Empire of Light, which critic Bob Mondello says is set almost entirely inside a grand old movie palace. When it opened in the 1920s, the Seaside Empire Theater must have been fabulous. Towering Art Deco sign facing the boardwalk, a grand double staircase in the lobby, burnished curved wood on the walls, brass fittings polished till they gleam like gold to match the gold swirls in the burgundy carpet. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. And that's just the lobby. In the auditorium, acres of seats face a velvet curtain that parts to reveal a majestic screen. It still has the power to awe. But this is the Maggie Thatcher 80s, and the films on the marquee now are the Blues Brothers and All That Jazz. Two titles because the grand old Empire Theater fell on hard times and got chopped into a multiplex. But folks still come, and Hillary, played by Olivia Coleman, still forces a smile through her numbness while selling them popcorn, until the arrival of a new employee, a student played by Michael Ward, with an upbeat Sidney Poitier vibe. They strike up a friendship, and suddenly she's full of life, encouraging him. They turned me down the first time. 
To study what? Architecture. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. You have to try again. Yeah, maybe. But you can't just give up. Stephen. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. No one's going to give you the life you want. You have to go out and get it. Excellent advice, though of course she's not done that herself, and when her moods turn erratic, it becomes clear why. That numbness she had before? Medicated. Stephen's there and responsible, but when she's off her meds and creates a scene... Hillary, are you right? Tell me truthfully. Did I humiliate myself? What? Tell me, did I? There's only so much cover he can provide. No, it wasn't humiliating. It was just... intense. To be honest. I thought you were a bit of a hero. <laughs> That's very nice of you. Hard to believe. Filmmaker Sam Mendes reportedly built Empire of Light around Coleman, and eyes darting, smile tentative, she delivers for him. The director also built the film around his setting, and the Empire Theater doesn't let him down either, a movie palace of the sort that audiences have increasingly been giving up for streaming services, despite the everyday miracle they deliver. Phil. It's just static frames with darkness in between. Toby Jones is projectionist, musing to Stephen about the magic they work in this place. There's a little flaw in your optic nerve. So if I run the film at 24 frames per second, it creates an illusion of motion. An illusion of life. So you don't see the darkness. Darkness? What darkness? For Mendes, darkness is what you get when you turn off the TV. At the cinema, he sees, as will audiences, an empire of light. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops now through December 24th, holidaypops.org.